0: Welcome to the City Church Cardiff podcast. We're an Elim Pentecostal church in the centre of Cardiff dedicated to bringing hope in the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you're inspired and impacted by this message. Well, hello. If I haven't bumped into you yet around church, my name's Amy, I'm part of the City Church staff, and I have the privilege of speaking to you this evening. <laughs> Sorry, i always want to do an evil laugh on platform, so... Um, so I am wondering this evening, have you heard or have you read The Chronicles of, the Narnia, of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? I'm seeing some nods, yeah? Okay, cool. Um, well, for those of you who maybe are not so familiar, The Chronicles of Narnia is a series of novels about the adventures of children in a land called Narnia. Narnia exists parallel to our world, and in it animals can talk, magic is real, and this mighty golden lion called Aslan created the world by singing it into being, and then he laid down his life to protect it, and he is king. I wonder if this sounds familiar. You see, C.S. Lewis was a believer. He knew Jesus, and when he created the, the lion in Narnia, when he created Aslan, Aslan was his allegory of Jesus, or his parable, Jesus as Aslan. In the second novel, four children stumble into Narnia by accident, only instead of finding this beautiful world um, that was created, they find an eternal frozen winter. And then they're told the good news by Mr. Beaver, because remember, animals can talk, it's okay, it's just a book. Aslan is coming back. That's the good news. So let me share a quick quote with you right now. So this is from um, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. So they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. That's Mr. Beaver because he can talk. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everybody felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump on its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. If we could stumble into Matthew chapter 13, like the children do into Narnia, we would find that Jesus is on the move. We're in first century Israel and the Jewish people are under Roman occupation. God gave them their land, but now the Roman Empire controls it. An occupation strikes at the identity, the very heart of the people. The Jewish temple, their most sacred space, is turned into this instrument of economic oppression. Taxes are so high, it's impossible for anybody to escape poverty. And on top of this, the Israelites haven't heard from God in 400 years. They haven't heard from him through a prophet or a king like they would normally. They are waiting for the Messiah a military and political king who they expect will rule with an iron fist, kick the Romans to the curb, and then usher in a new era of peace and prosperity. And Jesus, the humble carpenter, is on the move. Matthew four twenty-three to 25 tells us that, So large crowds are following Jesus, this healer who speaks with authority and proclaims that the kingdom of heaven is near. So many people want to hear what he has to say, that in the start of um, Matthew chapter 13, he has to get on a boat to be seen and heard. Everyone is curious, who is this dude? What is he teaching about? Why do the Pharisees, the leaders of um, the religious law, hate him and man, they really hate him? Is he actually a healer, is he? like some are suggesting, the promised Messiah? Or is he a heretic? Is he a fraud? So into this atmosphere of hope and doubt, Jesus speaks, but he doesn't share military plans to usurp the Roman empire. No, he shares parables, stories about the kingdom of heaven. The son of God is a storyteller. Can you imagine? walking for days through the dust, arriving at the Sea of Galilee to find out that this guy is just gonna tell you a story? Like, I don't know about you, but I would be fuming. Worse than that, I'd be tamping. That's the Welsh version when you're really, really angry. Like, thanks Jesus, as a poverty-stricken first century Jewish farmer, I really needed to hear about the four types of soil. But of course, there's more to these stories than meets the eye. Jesus is using everyday scenes from life at the time to explain the supernatural kingdom of his father, things hidden since the creation of the world. He's meeting them, us, on our level. And we have the privilege of considering one of these parables this evening. So. Let's read Matthew 13:44 to 46. So this is the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl. Now if you were here this morning you already know all about the parable of the hidden treasure because Stephen, where are you? There you are. He was preaching up a storm, but we're not going to go over that ground again. But I'm going to read the parables together because Matthew's account of the life of Jesus groups them together. So here we go. Matthew 13:44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Short and sweet, isn't it? What does it mean? Well, unlike many of the parables that Jesus tells, This one is not explained, not by Jesus and not by Matthew's account in chapter 13. So we get to do a little bit of what I call spiritual sleuthing to discover what Jesus was saying about the kingdom of heaven. So if you're with me, turn to your neighbor and say sleuth for truth. (laughs) Amazing. Thanks, guys. So if anyone mentions the word heaven normally, it tends to conjure up this idea of fluffy white clouds and gold-lined streets and people floating around in white robes looking really bored. But remember, we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, okay, um, the reign of Jesus as king, the blessings that come from accepting Jesus as our king, the people of God, it's us. These are things that the amazing Sean Reese was telling us about when she was preaching not too long ago. And that's a lot more exciting than a boring white robe, okay, um, so the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, He's like a merchant looking for fine or expensive pearls. Now that sounds a bit weird to us today, but comparing the kingdom of heaven to a fine pearl would have made sense to those in the first century. And let me tell you for why. Pearl hunting was dangerous. Like, in my notes, I have this in capitals. It's bold. It's got a massive D at the start. Like, it is dangerous. To get at a pearl, this is, li- it's crazy. The pearl hunter had to tie rocks to their body and then jump over the side of a little boat and sink 40 feet into the ocean to the depth that oysters thrive at. And then he had to scour around in the mud to find some oysters. And then when he's grabbed as many of them as he could, he'd have to cut free of the rocks and then swim back up 40 feet, still holding their breath. We're talking like solid deep-sea diving here. And then after all that, there was no guarantee at all that there would be a single uh, single pearl in any of the oysters that they'd gathered. They'd only found out when they opened them. And they're risking their lives for that chance. On average, one in every 1,000 oysters had a pearl. But you can bet your bottom dollar that more than one in every 1,000 pearl hunter died or drowned so for this reason a perfect pearl was priceless it was more expensive than a diamond they were even used as financial investments you know they didn't have banks move over stocks and shares pearls were where it was at so as pearls had a high monetary value we would expect the merchant in the story would buy the pearl sell it on and make a profit right but that's not how the parable ends interesting jesus loves to surprise us instead he tells us the merchant sells everything he had to bite the pearl. everything like when jesus says everything he means everything this this person sold his clothes his shoes his food his livestock his candles his oil furniture pressure whatever he had it's all gone everything and this is very unexpected A pearl is lovely to look at when there's food on the table and, you know, you actually have a table, but it's not so helpful when you're cold and hungry and you don't have a roof over your head. So what is Jesus actually saying about the kingdom of heaven through this story? Well, the most popular way to understand it is that we are the merchant on the hunt in life for something of value. There are many places that we might look for fulfillment, many nice pearls that we might see in the marketplace of life, but only the pearl of great value, which is the kingdom of heaven and relationship with God will truly satisfy. But Jesus also shows us that there's a cost to access this. Now this isn't a monetary amount. We don't need to buy our way into heaven with good deeds or dosh and let's be real, we couldn't do that even if we tried, but we are called to surrender everything to lay our lives down before god as an offering to accept his kingship and leading to cease to live for ourselves and to start to live for him surrendering everything brings about a radical shift in us because once we've seen jesus once we've had a glimpse of his kingdom our priorities start to change how could they not when we meet the one who created us face to face when we Meet the one who knows us better than anybody else ever can or will. The kingdom of heaven is not just a nice pearl. It's the pearl. It's worth more than anything else in this life. Be warned, knowing Jesus will ruin you for anything lesser. That's the cost. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that it isn't steep. The kingdom of heaven is not about comfort, but it is worth it. Jesus is worth it so sleuths now we know the context of the parable and we have arrived at an interpretation so i have three questions for us to consider think of these like a spiritual mot for your heart so the first question is what are you seeking after we live in a society of dissatisfaction we are surrounded by this hidden capitalistic ideology from birth. We're immersed in it and it shapes our understanding of the world. One of the things that capitalism tells us about is there's all this stuff that we need to be happy. And we need it now. Actually, we needed it yesterday. So our inbuilt sense of that there must be something more to life than this. Our longing for spiritual connection with our Creator gets hijacked into a place of physical want instead. And society tells us to want so many things, the perfect gym bod, the best job, that promotion, the new car, that phone that came out two weeks ago because now your old one's outdated, the holiday in the sun with friends and perfect photos for Insta, an active social life in real life and online, a loving family and pets, all these cool hobbies and stuff you have to be doing, otherwise you're not it. Um, And then somehow we're supposed to magically balance all of these different things, all of these competing things. And if you can't do that, then there's something wrong with you. Even the most positive stuff in the wrong quantity or priority in our lives is dangerous. It's damaging. We need money to buy food, but we've also looked at the hold that money can have over us and on our lives in the last preaching series, Financially Free. There's a saying, you have to possess your possessions or they possess you. The things we want when placed above God or in the absence of connection with God shift our perception of their importance. How many of you know that idols are not just made of silver and gold? What we seek after becomes what we worship. So the things we want sometimes when they're not in perspective with our relationship with God can be damaging. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Sometimes as believers, we try to have two masters, don't we? We hold on to the pearl of great value in one hand, and then in the other, we're trying to grab all of this other stuff. All these counterfeit pearls, these distractions. We miss the reality of what we have, of who we've been called to. We forget to open our hand and recognize what we already have. Nothing we will ever desire can compare to the Lord. Often it's fear that kind of pushes us towards seeking. Fear we're not good enough. Fear that maybe God will not be enough for us. We tell ourselves if we just add the right combination of things into our lives, then we'll, we'll be okay, then we'll be safe. It's amazing that even in the OG humans, even in Adam and Eve, we see evidence of a missed place yearning for more. So they were in the Garden of Eden and they are walking face to face with God. And they chose to step away because they were told that God was withholding something from them. They wanted the more. Genesis 3 tells us that they ate the fruit that God told them not to because they saw it was desirable for gaining wisdom. I don't know who needs to hear this this evening, but if we think God is withholding from us, it's normally because we are withholding from him. Half-hearted is not in his nature, it's not who he is. So what are you seeking after? If this question is stirring something in you right now, it's okay, I've got good news for you. God has got you, he's got the solution to your seeking. Be still, he says in Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. I think that we like to overcomplicate things as humans, but honestly, the solution is to stop, to stop seeking after the stuff that will never satisfy us and to know who God is, to learn to wait on him with no expectations, no demands, just you and your creator, the Alpha and Omega, the servant king and savior who is head over heels in love with you. He loves you. I feel like there's someone here and the little voice in your head has just said, he loves everyone else. He doesn't love you. That's a lie. He really loves you. He sees you. He knows you. There's a call on each of our lives that we're sometimes too busy to hear. Be with me. Stop and breathe with me. Let God catch your breath you. Let him remind you of who you really are, the head and not the tail. Fearfully and wonderfully made, more precious than rubies. So being still is like a heart realignment. It allows the rest of the rubbish the world tries to like force on us to fall away in the majesty of his presence. It is freedom. It is. Our second question to consider this evening. What are you running from? Now, we can think of this like the opposite side of the coin to seeking after. Instead of searching for something of value, when we run, we try to preserve a status quo that is inferior to what God has for us. Because that's what feels safe. That's what feels like it's gonna protect us. And running can come in many forms. I think of Jonah, uh, when God tells him, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And instead, he boards a, sh- a ship to Tarshish, which is the furthest limit in the Western world that the Israelites knew about, which was also in the complete opposite direction to Nineveh. Like, go big or go home, fair play to him. He went big. He was like, nope, I'm not going there. I'm terrified, Lord. Bye. But sometimes running is less obvious as well. So after Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples scatter to the wind. And Matthew 26:58 tells us that Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. This is Peter who stepped out onto water to be with Jesus. Peter who had promised Jesus he would never disown him. And he follows Jesus at a distance and then denies that he knows him, not once, not twice, but three times. For a believer, running can involve following Jesus at a distance or falling out of our spiritual rhythms, kind of losing step with God only being a Christian on Sunday, denying our faith, no longer taking the time to be with him or read our Bibles, not having a Sabbath and resting. I'm particularly bad at that one. Not prioritizing gathering with fellow believers. There are many reasons that we might run from God. Sometimes it's because we have a knock in life and it affects our faith. Sometimes we're so used to being independent that we can't hand things over to him. We find it hard to trust that God will look after us. Other times it's because we start to believe that we're not good enough or that we're too far gone for God to save us. I had this colleague um, that I would invite to church um previously when I was working for the Citizens Advice and every time I said, oh, come along, you know, you'd be so welcome. We'd lo- I'd love to um, introduce you to my church friends. She'd say, yeah, but Amy, if I step over that threshold, I'm gonna burst into flames. Am I some people's perception of what will happen? So we might run from ourselves, from the way that we think God sees us, from our emotions, from things in our lives, we'd rather not examine too closely. Running might even look like a positive thing, so being constantly productive, you can start to feel like a hamster going round and round and round on a wheel, but you can't get off and it becomes this vicious repeating loop. Can me a wave if you've ever heard the saying, we're human beings, not human doing. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it really annoying when people tell you that? Usually it's when you've got like a million and one things to do and they're trying to be helpful and you just want to, they say it and you know they're trying to be helpful, but you just want to. You want to punch him in the face. But it's annoying because there's truth in there. We see this truth in the Bible. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, and this is the message translation, Jesus invites us to stop running, to get off the hamster wheel. He says, Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me watch how i do it learn the unforced rhythms of grace i won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly god sees you he knows the number of hairs on your head he knows your hopes and dreams he knows everything about you and he promises not to lay anything that is heavy or ill-fitting on you he promises to teach us to live freely and lightly, but we have to stop running and let him work in us. My final question this evening is, what do you need to surrender to take hold of the pill? What are you holding on to that it's time to let go of? When Jesus encounters Simon Peter and Andrew for the first time, they're fishermen. They're casting out nets onto the Sea of Galilee. They cast them out, they pull them in, they gather the fish, they repeat. They probably weren't scholarly enough to follow a rabbi, a teacher of the law, which was kind of the goal for Jewish boys and men. You know, think of like beard and books. Like they just they, they in a way they were social rejects. But Jesus calls them, he sees them. Come and follow me, he says in Matthew 4, 19 and 20, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they leave their nets and follow him. Jesus, the rabbi of all rabbis, asks them to follow him, to surrender their old for his new. In exchange, he welcomes them into his circle of influence where they'll hear firsthand about the kingdom of heaven, they'll witness miracles, they'll see a storm calmed, demons cast out, and they have their lives transformed but also redefined from fishermen to fishers of people. In that moment of invitation, they had a choice. They could let their pasts define who they are or they could let Jesus. And Jesus offers us the same invitation this evening. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? That's from Luke 9, 23 to 25. What area of your life do you need to surrender to God this evening? What do you need to let go of to be all in? You see, there's another way to look at the parable of the pearl. Instead of us being the pearl merchant on the lookout for this, this something of value, Jesus is the merchant and he's searching for people who will surrender to him. He paid the highest price for our purchase. He was born into time. He took on the human condition. He experienced poverty and hunger, exhaustion and pain, rejection and slander. And finally, he laid down his life, his everything on the cross for our mistakes. He bought salvation at the cost of his life, his everything. To Jesus, we are a worthy investment, precious and beloved. And he asks if we will follow him. So, I wonder, if you want to respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him for the first time, I'd love to invite you to say a prayer with me that's going to appear on the screen. (coughs) So, let's all speak this out together, okay? Jesus, I acknowledge that I have done wrong things and that my sin has separated me from you, but I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. Today, I ask for your forgiveness and thank you for your gift of new life. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I choose relationship with you and I choose to live for you. Please come into my heart and change my life now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. To find out more, visit our website at citychurchcardiff.com or find us on social media.